Today, we will be comparing the insolvency and restructuring laws in Singapore and Malaysia. Black and white. You're listening to Black and White, a podcast by Satya Law. I'm Wen Jian, co-founder of Satya Law, and in each episode, we'll be discussing current legal issues with a focus on finance and tech. Join us as we discover how these developments impact business, finance, and the legal industry. Malaysia and Singapore. There is no shortage of divisive rivalries between these two neighboring countries. Who invented Lohei? Which country has the better chicken rights? Which has the better football team? Thankfully, today's topic is less controversial. Today, we are taking a closer look at upcoming changes to the restructuring and insolvency laws across the causeway in Malaysia and how these compare to the restructuring and insolvency laws here in Singapore. I am very pleased to introduce today's special guest, Janice Mui, a restructuring and insolvency lawyer practicing in Screen, which is one of the largest law firms in Malaysia. Janice joins us from Kuala Lumpur. And also with us is our very own Associate Director, Bethel Chan of Satya Law. She is with me right here in our studio in Singapore. Janice, what is restructuring and insolvency, or R&I? Hi, Wenjen. Thanks for the introduction. Restructuring and insolvency, there are actually two parts. But both restructuring and insolvency basically is an area of practice which deals with companies in financial distress, right? Restructuring is the bit where these companies try to reduce or renegotiate their current liabilities. Basically, it's where you try to rescue the company, you know, before it goes to the point of no return. The purpose of restructuring really is to restore the liquidity so that the company is able to continue with its business. Whereas insolvency is really the part where the company is in a financial state which is no longer able to meet its obligation and can no longer be saved. Let me turn to you now, Bethel. Hi, Wenjen. You worked on a liquidation that had a direct connection to Malaysia, didn't you? Yes, I did act for the liquidators of BSI Bank which of course was uh, involved in the 1MDB scandal. Let's get back to today's topic, R&I laws. Janice, can you give us an overview of the R&I legal landscape in Malaysia? Currently, the Companies Act, which we are applying, is the 2016 Companies Act. Immediately before that, it was the Companies Act 1965. And if there's one thing I must say is that the 2016 Companies Act is now more pro-debtors, I would say, but with a lot of protections being afforded to creditors as well, compared to the 1965 Companies Act, which I think is very liquidation-based and pro-creditor. It seems to be a trend in many countries that when they modernize their insolvency legislation, they would typically introduce what Janice called pro-debtor or pro-rescue features. Why do you think that has been the case, Bethel? Well, basically, as opposed to the old regime where, you know, once a company was in financial distress, it was kind of a given that, or you would assume that it's eventually going to be wound up and dissolved. Pro-rescue features essentially give the companies options to explore how they may be able to work things out with their creditors and other stakeholders. When we talk about pro-rescue features, we talk about things like moratoria, which give a company some breathing space from its creditors so that they can have some time and an opportunity to relook at how they're doing things and see what sort of compromises can be made. The Companies Act 2016, we've introduced the corporate rescue mechanisms. So we have the CBA and the JM in addition to the scheme of arrangement provision. 
in terms of the court's approach to R&I cases, they are mindful of the commercial realities and they see things from a practical aspect as well. To illustrate this point, I want to draw your attention to two cases in Malaysia. There's a case called Centoria Binas and Nirenberhat. There was an application for scheme of arrangement and there was an application was for restraining order and the restraining order extends to the corporate guarantor, not just the scheme company. And then there was an objection by the creditors. The reasons why the creditors objectors were they say that, you know, under Section 386 of the Companies Act, it says that an order made by the court under subsection 1, which is the RO, the restraining order, shall not have the effect of restraining further proceedings in any action or proceeding against any person, including the guarantor of the company but does not include the company that had applied for the restraining order. Meaning to say that these creditors actually refer to these provisions and say, look, a restraining order cannot extend to a corporate guarantor. What the court said was very interesting though. The court actually read that provision and said that, uh, no, Section 368, Sub 6, Sub B of the Companies Act does not actually prevent the court from granting an order expressly or specifically to restrain proceedings against guarantors. And one of the main reasons why the court made that decision was because the court actually said that it's clear that the guarantor here plays an integral role in the scheme to the extent that if this guarantor is not involved, the proposed scheme would fail. This guarantor plays a very important role. And because of that, I think the restraining order should extend to the guarantor as well. A restraining order prevents creditors from pursuing actions against the company, for example, to recover outstanding debts. And that's important to prevent a raise to judgment amongst creditors. It also eases the pressure on the management and allows them to focus on rescuing the company and generating fresh cash flow. Yes, that's an interesting point, Janice. I think most would argue that a moratorium such as the one that you have been telling us about should not prevent creditors from enforcing their rights over their security. And parent or subsidiary company guarantees are basically another form of security. So it's one thing to stop a creditor from suing a debtor company. I think it's quite another to stop the creditor from also enforcing their rights over the security. Yeah, because then your security is worthless now. <laughs> Then there is the High Court decision of federal powers in Nirabharhat. Earlier on, there was this case called rebiasis, I think. It was a High Court case where the court in that rebiasis case actually said that when you make an application for judicial management order, you should have ready with you a statement of proposal which sets out extensively what's the plan for the company. You shouldn't come with some skeletal proposal. Cases after that where companies applied for judicial management, it became a trend where they would always put in a full-fledged statement of proposal. But you see, it's not always possible because you're rushing against time, you know. And sometimes you need the judicial manager to have taken over control of the company before they are able to come up with a proper proposal and things like that. I can personally relate to that because a few months ago, I was acting for an objecting creditor who was opposing a proposed judicial management order being sought by the data company. And the main ground of objection that we put forward was the lack of details in the White Knight proposal that the company was relying on. All they had was an agreement with the White Knight to conduct due diligence. There was no firm indication of interest to invest or to acquire. But ultimately, the Singapore High Court, interpreting our own legislations here, held that there was enough to get the company through to JM. So not too different. Can I now move back to you, Bethel? 
Can you give us a quick overview of Singapore R&I legal landscape? Yeah, so interestingly, at one point of time, Singapore's company's law was very similar to Malaysia. And that's, of course, because Singapore was formerly a part of Malaysia and left in 1965. And so our first iteration, the Companies Act 1967, actually took substantially quite a lot from Malaysia's Companies Act 1965. And as Janice mentioned, in the case of Malaysia earlier, the the primary ways that the company could end up in that time in liquidation or receivership. And I think this was joined by the introduction of judicial management in the 1980s. Schemes of arrangement also were possible. But generally at that time, Singapore was sort of tracking developments in other common law jurisdictions, which were not super pro-restructuring or not super pro-debtor. And then this all changed quite a lot in 2017 when Singapore made amendments to the Companies Act, which was then where most of Singapore's restructuring and insolvency law was found before the enactment of the Insolvency Restructuring and Dissolution Act of 2018. And the amendments basically take a leaf out of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code and introduced quite a lot of the sort of pro-rescue, pro-restructuring sorts of measures that I'm sure we'll be discussing in a short while. Back to you, Janice. From across the causeway here in Singapore, we have seen a lot of discussions and excitement over certain changes that will be introduced to Malaysian R&I laws. What can you tell us about these upcoming changes? Why should we be excited? I guess we have to thank Singapore. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, the hot topic now is really the Companies Amendment Bill 2023. For the purposes of our podcast today, I'll just be focusing on the R&I aspect. Uh, The first uh, major amendment I want to highlight is the amendments relating to uh, the procedure of scheme of arrangement. In the proposed amendment, what's going to happen is that the scheme meeting shall be chaired either by an insolvency practitioner appointed by the court Or if there's no insolvency practitioner which is appointed, it must be shared by a person elected by the majority in value of the creditors or class of creditors or members or class of members. Now, currently, the law actually does not expressly provide who is to be the chairperson of the scheme meeting. So the chairperson or chairman is typically appointed by the applicant scheme company. With that, sometimes it raises concerns as to the impartiality of this chairperson. But that's all going to change once the amendments come into place or if it comes into place. It's actually all very similar to what Singapore already has. Another proposed amendment is that the court has the power to order for a revote. And then another proposed amendment which I'm very excited about is also the proof of that process. Currently, the Companies Act doesn't provide a right to a creditor to inspect the proof of that of another creditor. But after the proposed amendment, creditors are allowed to inspect the proof of that of other creditors provided certain requirements are met. Proof of debt is a process that takes place after a company enters liquidation. As part of this exercise, creditors who have claims against the company will submit the claims to the liquidator accompanied by all supporting evidence. The liquidator will then assess the claims, effectively acting like a court. They will then determine whether the claim is admitted or rejected. And a dissatisfied creditor will typically have the option of an appeal to the relevant court. 
Now, it's very interesting because before this proposed amendment, there are cases where creditors would write to the scheme company and say that I want to inspect the proof of that by this other creditor. I, I need to know that there's no hanky-panky going on, you know, that we're all treated properly and equally. So in one case, I think this was the top builder case in a high court level. The court actually said that if you want to inspect the proof of that form of another creditor, you must produce prima facie evidence of impropriety in the admission or rejection of the proofs of that. Now, when Jen and Bethel, I think you all would know the Malaysia High Court in this top builder's case actually referred to and agreed with the Royal Bank of Scotland. And this is the Singapore Court of Appeals decision, which said that if you want to inspect, there must be evidence of impropriety in the admission or rejection of the proof of that. So the Malaysian High Court actually referred to that case and said, unless and until you can prove this, no, you're not going to be allowed to inspect. So I think with the proposed amendment, it makes things clearer. And interestingly enough, this prima facie evidence of impropriety is not in the proposed amendment. It's not a requirement. It's been omitted. Also under the scheme, the enhanced moratorium, unlike a judicial management, under the scheme of arrangement, when you apply, you don't get an automatic moratorium. You have to apply for a restraining order. Yeah, And to apply for a restraining order there are certain requirements you have to meet, requirements which are not easy to be met. But with the proposed amendments, what's going to happen is the moment you apply for a restraining order, it triggers an automatic restraining order for a period of two months or until the application for restraining order is heard and disposed of, whichever is earlier. This is going to be very helpful because you're rushing against time. You know, if I have to meet all these stringent requirements before I can even get the first stage of this restraining order, it's going to defeat the purpose, really. Because the longer you delay, you're just going to have more claims filed against you. You know, you're just going to incur more debts. You just want to be protected as soon as possible. So you want to put a stop to all actions against you. So I think this amendment is really welcome. And restraining order can now extend to related company. A lot of times, of course, these corporate guarantors are actually their parent company, you know. So it would fall under the definition of related companies. And it makes so much sense, right? Because yes, if I'm going to have a scheme and if the scheme is dependent really on this related company helping me without which this whole scheme would fail, it makes sense for the restraining order to also extend to this related company. Now, Bethel. Janice mentioned earlier that most of the proposed changes to the Malaysian RNI laws seem very similar to provisions that are already in Singapore's RNI legislations. Any comments on that? Yeah, so similarly, I mentioned that when we sort of overhauled our own restructuring and insolvency regime in 2017, we introduced a lot of these pro-rescue types of mechanisms and features. And a lot of what Janice has mentioned, like the enhanced moratoriums, I think under the Malaysian amendments, there will also be the extension of or the possibility of extension of the moratorium to related companies, for example. So that's also very similar to features that were introduced in Singapore in 2017. Some other parallels include the introduction of prepacked schemes of arrangement and super priority rescue financing, those types of things. Then we also have, again, similar to what Singapore has, the cross-class cram-down mechanism as well. A prepacked scheme of arrangement is basically a simplified scheme process where the scheme proposal need not be placed before a creditor's meeting prior to court approval. 
The proposal can go straight to court for approval, but it needs to be shown that the process of putting it before the creditors is unnecessary as there is more than sufficient support for the scheme. Prepacks are especially useful for SME businesses because it could be faster and cheaper. The other concept Janice mentioned was a cross-class cramdown. Cross-class cramdown provisions are very powerful tools to address what we call the holdout problem. A holdout happens when a small group of dissenting creditors effectively holds all other creditors to ransom by not agreeing to the scheme proposal. Cross-class cramdown permits the court to approve the scheme proposal despite these dissenting creditors if certain conditions are fulfilled. What these conditions are will depend on what the local legislations say. So that brings me to the last question for today's episode. Maybe I'll start with you, Janice. What are some of the changes that you expect to see once these proposed legislative changes in Malaysia take effect? Honestly, I think that the first effect we will see is probably you'll see lesser companies going into liquidation. There'll be lesser winding up. And maybe to a certain extent, lesser companies goes into receivership as well. You'll see more white knights being more willing to come forward to save these companies because of the, for example, we're going to have the super priority provisions in place, right? With super priority, entities will be more willing to pump in money to save the company. And also, of course, more companies will now apply for judicial management as well as um, and, uh, more companies will apply for judicial management. Also under the Companies Act as it is currently, companies who have charges over their properties and undertaking, they cannot utilize the corporate voluntary arrangement mechanism, the provisions. But that's all going to change as well. So I think moving forward, you'll see more rescue being done in Malaysia rather than liquidation, for sure. Thanks, Janice. So Beth, last question for you. Regarding these upcoming legislative changes in Malaysia, we have had many of them implemented in Singapore since 2017. How have they impacted the RNI landscape in Singapore? Well, I mean, I think certainly there have been opportunities to have these features tried and tested in the Singapore courts. So, for example, there have been a number of successful applications for super priority rescue financing. And we've also seen the sanction of prepackaged schemes of arrangement. I don't know whether that has necessarily, in general, made Singapore a jurisdiction where we're seeing less winding ups and more rescues, more turnarounds. Sometimes you do hear of these high-profile cases that are, you know, the first case to get sanctioned for super-priority financing, the first case to get sanctioned for prepack schemes, or the first case to, you know, get some sort of novel feature. But in the end, a couple of months later, you Google it, and then you find out that the company ended up in liquidation anyway. But suddenly, you know, it's more interesting times for R&I practitioners. And a closing note from me, perhaps... I think having in place the right set of laws is one thing, but to truly introduce a rescue culture into a particular jurisdiction, that requires buy-in from the stakeholders, especially the local businesses. And one challenge that we see all the time, especially here in Asia, when the companies here find themselves in distress, there is a general reluctance to open their doors and books to allow outside professionals like lawyers and turnaround management professionals to come in and advise them on turnaround strategies. And typically, they would only open their books when it's too late, when the options are either a court-supervised restructuring process or insolvency. Okay, thank you very much to the both of you, Janice, Beth. This has been a very interesting discussion, especially for me, a Malaysian who is practicing law in Singapore. 
Thanks, Wenjin. And for the record, we invented Lohei. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Wenjin and Battle. I truly enjoyed my time. And for the record, Malaysia has the better chicken rice. That might be true. I'm that not might so be. sure And about we that. have the better nasi lemak as well. That's probably true. That is absolutely true. <laughs> You've been listening to Black and White by Satya Law. Join us in the next episode for more insights on the latest developments in the legal landscape and how they impact us all. Thanks for listening.